0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Great. Hey, my name's Ty. I am one of the pastors here. It's an absolute joy uh, to be with you all this morning. Real quick before we get started, a few things. Number one, you see this in front of me, right? We're baptizing today. Super excited about that. For some of you, maybe that's not on your radar, but today I just want you to know you can trust Jesus and be, uh, be obedient in baptism. So just kind of put that on the radar for you if you've not done that before. Uh, Second thing is this. We have a Covenant Partner class on September 18th at 2 p.m. right in here. Just real quick, you've probably been hearing me say it over the past few weeks, but if you're new here, you need to hear this. Uh, Covenant Partnership is how we describe membership, and so we believe that membership is very important. And so if you are not a Covenant Partner of Grace Point Church, you should be one. There's lots of benefits. Uh, Show up to this class. You get to learn all the inside, outsides of Grace Point Church, our theology, what we do, what we do not do, how we lead, and all that good stuff. Get you a place to ask questions. It usually lasts about three hours. We have child care. Make sure you don't miss on signing up for that today, either at CenterPoint or GracePointVegas.com. And then lastly, we have a marriage conference coming up October the 1st. It's going to be on a Saturday. It's all day. It's for people who are engaged to be married. Uh, married is for people uh, who have been married for a little while, a long while, people whose marriages are amazing, people whose, whose marriages are not that amazing, and everything in between. Uh, and there's childcare all day long for that, so don't miss that opportunity. There's an hour and a half lunch where you get to leave here, leave your children here, and go eat lunch together. Some of you are like, man, I, I, I want to do that. Uh, it's called a date. I didn't know if you guys knew that. That's what they're called when you go out together with your spouse. Anyway, without the kids, it's called a date, uh, but make sure you sign up for that as well. Uh, we're almost out of space. If we run out of space, we'll put you on a wait list, and we'll try to expand that tomorrow. All that sound good? Um, I, I want to say a disclaimer before we get all the way through this message. Don't leave me. In the middle of the message, don't get mad. Like, I'm out of here. No, no, no. Let's like, see it all the way through. It's like a movie. you got to have to see the thing all the way through. It might get better at the end, okay? All right. Hey, uh, you ever notice how uh, the story of Esther is like a really bad story of Cinderella? <laughs> like, uh, you ever flip through Apple News? Like, I don't have social media hardly anymore. And, like, Apple News is my next best thing to see what's going on in the world around me. It's Apple News is just crazy on there. But anyway, uh, don't look this up. And as I say, don't look this up, you're like, I'm going to look this up. Uh, I just saw they, they're redoing the Winnie the Pooh uh, movie into a horror slasher. The other day. why? That's not like, why would you do anything like that? Why would you take a really good story and mess it up? Now, just so we know, Cinderella is a fairy tale, and the book of Esther is a true story. And the book of Esther came out way before Cinderella, but it does have kind of these Cinderella notes to it. Think about it. Uh, in the fairy tale of Cinderella, uh, there's a prince. He's in search for true love. So he gathers all the eligible bachelorettes of the kingdom, and they all have this big party in the ball. And whichever uh, one of the ladies of the kingdom uh, danced the best and he liked the most, then he would select her as the next uh, princess, right? And isn't that how Cinderella works? Sprinkle in some pumpkins, some mice, some ugly stepsisters, and, you know, the stroke of midnight. And you've got some Disney gold right there, am I right? And they've been remaking that story over and over and over and cha-ching, cashing in over and over and over. Well, uh, and it's basically a rags to riches, too. She goes from rags to riches, like we know the story. When you think about the story of Esther, it's, uh, it kind of feels the same, except it's a little bit more like at least NC-17, if not rated X. Uh, but it's basically, there's the Persian king named Ahasuerus. He's searching for a new queen. And so he ga- also gathers uh, all the eligible bachelorettes in the empire into his royal uh, palace. And Esther impresses the king more than anyone else. And she, she goes actually from rags to riches. Spoiler alert there. But the big difference, however, is that Cinderella captures the royal heart by dancing, whereas Esther has to do a little bit more than dancing there, if you know the story. But we'll get into that. Today, we're continuing our journey through the... I said, don't leave me. We're continuing our journey through the book of Esther uh, and just if you've missed any of it, we've, we've gone a couple weeks into it, and I'll give you a little bit of, uh, of what's been going on. Uh, we met the king Ahasuerus. He's of uh, over 127 providences, this big landmass. He's controlling millions and maybe if not a billion people. He's the leader. He's known as the king of kings at that time period. Uh, he seems like to them, like this God walking among them. And so he wanted to be worship. He's like the most wealthy, powerful man going. Uh, he likes to drink a whole lot, throws parties. He had a 180 day party for all the influencers, the government and all that. Uh, That's six months of parting. That's half a year of parting. After that, had a seven-month part or a seven-day party where all the average Joes and Janes of land came by and did this and that. Then at the end of this, he summoned his queen, his wife Vashti, to come uh, before all these drunken men. We think presumably naked, only with the crown on. And she says, "Not doing that." And he gets really mad. He gets some counsel from these knuckleheads. And the counsel are like, hey, you know what you should do? We, You should banish Vashti. And as a matter of fact, you should send a law out in all the land that basically a law where women have to respect their husbands. That's great. And so anyway, he follows that. And uh, that's kind of leading up to where we are today. And we said this, there's this whole theme behind the book of Esther. Just as a reminder, uh, God has never mentioned Esther, nor is prayer or repentance or the temple or worship or anything like that. And it's a book where it feels like God is completely absent. Martin Luther called it the Godless book. And so it feels like God is absent. But the theme of Esther is uh, God's providence, that God is always at work. And we said it's kind of like God has two hands. One hand is his visible hand. That's where we can see his miracles and see his activity and in, in the lives of the people there. But there's also his invisible hand where he's always working things out in the background for his glory and for our good. All right, we up to speed? Got it? All right, Esther chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, go to Esther chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we say this each and every week, and it's not just, just something to say, but you're really going to need a Bible. Uh, we, we love the Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. We believe that's God's Word to us. There's life in those pages, and so we really want to encourage you to get one so much so that we have free ones in Spanish and English up here. Make sure you grab one, and then also out at Center Point as well. And then version, you can download that, and then we'll put it up on the big screen for you. But we're going to be in Esther chapter 2. Verse 1, as you can tell from the longest scripture reading ever today, that it's a lot of text. (laughs) It was a long reading. You guys ready? After these things, hold on to that, verse 1. After these things, we're going to hold on to that. When the anger of the king Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And so um, this is after these things. And so uh, most scholars believe that between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's about four years have passed. History has told us that uh, Ahasuerus' dad went to Greece and tried to defeat them and came back. Uh, defeated himself, and so Ahasuerus wanted to avenge his father, and so he goes on a campaign to go uh, to beat Greece, and actually he gets beat as well and comes back. It's where we get the movie 300 from Frank Miller from. Anyway, don't watch that, um, but that's kind of the story there, and so it's it's been a, a long time period there. It says here in the text that he remembered Vashti. Now, it's not like he forgot Vashti or anything like that. When you look at the original word there, it has a lot of emotion behind it, like like he was lonely, like he was regretful, like he was almost guilty for uh, doing what he had done to her and to the ladies of the kingdom, potentially. Now, we know that he just has guilt, but he does not have godly sorrow. Why? Because he doesn't repent of it. He doesn't go to her and try to make this right and go to the people of the kingdom and make it right. He doesn't repent. So what does he do instead? He goes back to his counselors, and he gets more counsel from them. And if you think they had some wild, bonker, jacked-up counsel the first time around, Wait till you see what they're gonna instruct the king on this time. So we're in verse two. You ready? Verse two. This is his counselors. Then the king's young men. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Who attended him said, This is their counsel. <laughs> you can't make this up, man. Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the providence of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. "...under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the woman. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who please, pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti." So that's their counsel. And what does the king say? Mm-hmm, sounds pretty good to me. That's what he says. He's like, this, ple- this pleased the king, and he did so. This is horrible counsel. This is like a really bad uh, episode or series of The Bachelor, which is bad enough as it is, am I right? This is like really, really bad. And let me get, give you the gist of this. He's basically saying go out through the whole kingdom and take all the young, potentially teenage and early 20s women, girls that are beautiful, and haul them in for the king. Now, usually a king would marry for power or land takeover or try to combine kingdoms or something like that, but the criteria for this king right here is young virgin and beautiful. That's shallow. I mean, that's just super shallow. So this story is actually a story of kidnapping, sexual slavery, and human trafficking. This is it. The king, he lost his conquest taking over Greece, but he would not lose his conquest of taking over the women uh, of the land. I mean, this is absolutely horrible. And we have to understand the severity of this. These girls would be stripped from their homes, subjected to potentially uh, systematic rape, and locked away afterwards, never to be known by another man, never to raise a family, and never to know a normal life again. The king, they were never to sleep with another man again. There's a the philosopher, he said this, uh, he said, because of the king's fragile and shattered ego, the king would never fear that another in the kingdom would be told in the dead of the same night, years hence, that he was a better man than the king, and she would have no other man. I mean, it was just a, they were kidnapped and put into this enslavement, and they were locked in there for. Ever. Maybe to never even see the king again. Super bad. Now, you think about it, for some people, like, this is the worst thing in the world. They would fight it, and they would do whatever to, you know, avoid this being taken by the king and by his people. But you would think, too, in that culture, and some believe that some of the, the young gals would, would, like, yes, take me in. Because life was so hard. Uh, life was so difficult back then. This was like, hey, at least we get to live in the lap of luxury. It's got to be better than this hard existence that we have now. So there were, would be some mixed, uh, mixed opinions about that there. Uh, now, the writer in this setting, uh, he's setting this situation now, and we're going to be introduced to two new characters of the story. We're going to be introduced to God's people. Yay! Sort of. Let's see what's happening. Verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa. So now we're talking about Jew. This is, this is God's people of the Old Testament. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel. The citadel would be like, like, uh, like Washington, D.C. of the place. And so that means he kind of works for the government. You know what I'm saying? That's what he works for. His name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of uh, Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with uh, Jeconiah, uh, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, when we read that with our 2020 ears, 2022 ears, we read that, we're just like, ah, it's facts. It's information. It kind of anchors us a little bit in the story. But if you were a Jewish person back then hearing this or reading this, you would absolutely cringe. You'd be like, ugh. As soon as you would hear that, you'd be like, you would, there would be some, it'd be like you hear me say there was a guy by the name of Ty and he had 12 Nickelback albums and he would listen to them every day. You'd be like, oh God, like, and he loved Fast and the Furious movies or whatever. It'd just be like, you would cringe heartily on that. Well, if you're a Jewish person, you cringe heartily on this. Why? Well, first of all, because of his name, Mordecai. Mordecai is not a Jewish name. It has become a Jewish name, but originally Mordecai was a Persian name. So much so that it was basically a name that honored the Persian god, uh, Marduk. And so he is named after a false demonic god. That's what Mordecai means. Why does he have a pagan Persian name. Well, we need to ask another question. We need to ask the other question like, why is this Jewish person in Susa, which would be kind of modern day Iran, which is not, that's not Jerusalem, right? It's not like, why, why is he there? So, why is he there and why does he have this name? Well, we need to uh, kind of take a little bit of a history lesson, and I'm going to give you a big picture of history that's going to have a lot of holes in it that you need to go in and fill in yourself. But if you go back to the book of Daniel, uh, there's a king uh, named in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, which we see right here as well. God uses Nebuchadnezzar, this, this bad king, and his kingdom to discipline his people by taking them in captivity and out of Jerusalem because they have been, God's people have been disobedient. And so there was at least a generation or so of people who lived in Babylonian exile, away from Jerusalem. Then later on, after the time of exile, there's this other king by the name of Cyrus who came, and he says, hey, I don't want to own slaves, so you Jewish people, you're okay to go back to Jerusalem. Now, I've said Jerusalem a few times. Jerusalem is a very important place in the Old Testament, isn't it? What's in Jerusalem? The temple, and who dwells in the temple? And so the idea was, if we are away from Jerusalem, we're away from the temple, we are away from who? Right. And so if you keep looking, there's a generation there that goes by. And Isaiah comes, the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Hey, you all, rounded up, need to go back to Jerusalem. And then you can see them rebuilding Jerusalem in the book of, and uh, the walls of Jerusalem, the temple and all that back in Ezra and Nehemiah. You can go check that out. Uh, but not every family went back. Some of them stayed where they went into exile and beyond. And they even took. Uh, took wives or took spouses outside of, uh, of the Jews, which was a big no-no in the Old Testament, right? That's what Ezra, Ezra was kind of fleshing out, if you, if you remember that book as well. So more than likely when a Jewish person would read this or hear this, the reason why they would cringe was they would see Mordecai as a faulty person. They would see him as a bad Jewish person, especially with his name. He's named after a pagan god. He's living in a pagan city away from Jerusalem, and potentially he has married a pagan person or is is eating non-kosher food. They would see him as a totally compromised and compromising person. He's not keeping up with the law. And in the Old Testament, is that good or bad? Very bad. Now, when we think about the law of the Old Testament, think about being a Jewish person under that law. That law is there not to be restrictive, although it is somewhat restrictive, but the law of the Old Testament for an Old Testament Jewish person in that time period was to be formative. It's to make you a set-apart person. That's what the law was for. Got it? Eugene Peterson said it like this. I love the way he says it. He talks about in the beginning when they were given the law, he said, why? He says, Dumped into the moral chaos of pagan Canaanite culture, a cesspool of vile customs and sexual promiscuity, the Hebrews needed, which would be the Jews, needed guidelines on fundamental everyday issues of diet and nutrition, hygiene and disease, agricultural and animal sex, and other aspects of moral behavior. Maybe most of all, they needed worship rituals that would keep them attentive to God's uh, preservation and forgiveness in their everyday life, a sacrificial system that would replace the abhorrent child-burning sacrifices to the god Molech. That's what the law was for. The law was not like, all right, I'm going to make you guys a bunch of rigid, like, you know, rubes or whatever. Not, not at all. The, the law was to form them into the ways and the patterns of God and a pers- a people that were relating to God. And so when we look at uh, Mordecai, he looks more Persian than he looks Jewish. Would we all agree with that? With his name and where he's at? Would, you, would we agree with that? Okay. All right. So let's keep going. Verse seven, you still with me? I didn't mess you up earlier. Mess me up. All right, here, verse 7. Uh, so so uh, Mordecai, not all that bad, because look what he's doing in verse 7. He was bringing up uh, Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her and his own daughter. And so uh, Esther, Hadazah, she had lost her parents, and so Mordecai is her older, uh, more adult cousin, He's, he took her in. He's taking care of her. She is probably in her late teens or early 20s, most believe. Now, in verse 7, would you put verse 7 back up on the screen? Does anything stick out to you in verse 7, like something that you should be curious about? Anything? Bueller? She has two names. Why, why does she have two names? That's a, like when you see things like, like this in the Bible, it's okay to be curious about that. Why, why did... Why does she have two names, Hadassah and an Esther? Well, it's very important. The first name that we're given of her is Hadassah. That's a, her Jewish name, okay? And it means myrtle, and myrtle's a type of flower tree, and it, it means beauty and peace and joy. She has, she has some Jewish roots, okay? The second name she has is Esther. Guess what kind of name Esther is? Persian. That's her Persian name, named after the goddess of Ishtar, uh, the goddess of love, and also can mean star as well. So the book in the Bible is named after not Hadasha, but who? A Persian name named after a false god. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? So which one is she? Is she Hadasha or she, is she Esther? And the answer is both, both. And could you imagine the conflict in her heart living out both names? The tension in her life. She could pass as Hadasha in some circles around her Jewish friends and all that. She could pass as Esther around her Persian friends. It's kind of like she had a foot in both camps. She could turn on Esther at any time or turn on Hadasha at any time. You ever ever feel like that, Christian? Like you you have two names? Like someone may know you by this Someone else may know you by this. Someone may know you as like, oh, that's that Christian guy, Christian guy. You know, they love Jesus and the church. They worship him. They, they show up. They go. They, you know, they, they, they're, they're like kind of a godly person. And yet someone else is like, hey, do you know this person? I'm like, yeah, they are not godly. <laughs> they're, wait, wait, they're Christian? No, not them. You feel that tension just a little bit? Foot in both worlds here. Let's uh, hold, hold on to that. We'll see how this pans out in the story feels like she is in the world and of the world from the beginning of this book she looks more persian than jewish i think we would agree now she's got some major life getting ready to, uh, change coming her way and you know why because the text says there she's she's beautiful and uh, what's the king looking for beautiful young virgin verse 8 still with me okay so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in susa the citadel and custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the woman. How did Esther feel about this? What was she thinking during this time? Did she she go willingly? The text doesn't say. It's it's silent. It doesn't. it, It says, you could look at the text, it says a bunch of young women were gathered. There's a different word when it comes to Esther that she was taken. So perhaps... Maybe she was taken against her will. Maybe she put up a fight. We, we, we just, we don't know. And when you kind of look at those two words, gathered and taken, they're, they're kind of the same. So we, maybe not. Maybe it was a complicated situation for her because she knew as a Jewish person that um, she could never sleep with the king because he's he's not Jewish and that's against God's law. And she couldn't eat the, from the king's table because that wasn't kosher and that'd be against God's law. And like all the false worship and that would happen in the palace, well, that's against God's law. So that would be bad. But then she knew as a person of like, well, maybe maybe I can win this contest. May, maybe I could be the next queen. Like, you know, may, maybe, maybe this can happen. And so she's got she's to feel a little bit of a tension, kind of caught between two worlds. So what, what did she do? Did she ob- object like Daniel? You remember the story of Daniel? And Daniel was told to eat the king's food. He's like, not going to eat the king's food. I'm a vegetarian or whatever. He's like, I'm not doing that. And then there was a law made like, hey, you can't pray to God. He's like, well, not going to do that. Uh, I'm going to pray to God. And so they're like, even if that means death, does, does Esther do what Daniel does? Does she run? Does she defy the king? Does she obey God no matter if it costs her life? Well, let me tell you this. Esther is no Daniel. No Daniel. By the way, could you imagine being in a home where you had a young woman living in there and all of a sudden they're banging on the door and they got like their spears and swords and all that. It's like, hey, we're taking her. Like if you were a husband, a father, a dad, a brother, a sister, like what would you do? Like I don't, I'd be like, I'm dying. Like you're not taking, like I wrote a speech. If Someone came for one of my girls and it goes like this. <clears throat> I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you that I don't have any money. But what I do have is a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. (laughs) I didn't write it. Liam Neeson. Anyway, it'd be bad. Verse 9. I couldn't imagine someone like, hey, I'm taking your dollar. Like, no, you're not. (laughs) Not over my dead, buddy. All right, verse 9. And the young woman pleased him. So the young woman is who? The him. Who's the him? It's very important. It's Haggai. It's not the king yet. It's Haggai. Pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. And so it says right here, she won the favor of Haggai, the one in charge of this messed up game the king was playing. So this is a far cry from like the story of Daniel where he's like, I'm not, I'm not playing any of those games. She, she does it. Haggai in particular had one job. His one job was make sure the king was, at the end of the day, sexually pleased. Esther, it looks like she's, she's playing the part. Now notice that in Esther's case, she, she ends up making the most of her opportunity. It doesn't say that she found favor with Haggai. Right, found favor means she's like, like they they just kind of liked her. It says that she won favor with him. Do you know what that means? It's not passive. It's it's active. She's actively trying to to win. Like that's that's what's going on right here. She she she's not only beautiful but she's got street smarts and it's like she's like I, I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can if I can win this thing. Verse 10. Now the text the text leaves a lot there to kind of speculate, but that's specul- I mean, it's what the text is kind of leading us in. Like she's she's winning favor, so it looks like she wants to win. Verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now the author is tipping their hand. It's like she she's not telling them she's Jewish. She's, she's gonna withhold that information. She's not going to tell them that she has faith in the one true God. Now, why? Well, Mordecai, he tells her not to do this, but. But why is that? Why are they not telling the people, the Persians, that they are Jewish? I don't know. Perhaps there was, you know, that they, the Jewish people at that time period were being treated unfairly, or maybe that might hurt their chances to win. I, I, I don't know. The text doesn't say, but she concealed her faith in this situation. Is that good or bad? I don't answer. Just think about it. Verse 11. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and, was, and what was happening to her. And so um, that shows some concern for Mordecai, but he's also kind of the one coaching her along the way, right? And so it, it kind of looks like he, one of the reasons he may tell her to withhold letting them know that she was Jewish because he didn't want her to get DQ'd or didn't want a, you know, a ding against her record in this, this crazy competition. But guess what? It works. Like she has found favor in the head person there's eyes, and it, is, it has won her some favor uh, to where it's, it's advanced her with special, special privileges. Now, the writer in verse 12 is going to give us some of the horrible details of what's getting ready to happen. Verse 12. Isn't it funny? Like when you read the Bible, you just kind of read it and like, all right, read the Bible. But like when you stop and study it, you're like, oh man, this is a really tough story. Like you just like, I don't know how many times you guys have read Esther, but you just kind of read over it and like, huh? there's the story. But you read it now, it's like, oh, there's a lot going on. Verse 12. Now when the turn came, the turn came for each woman to go into the king Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, important detail, she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Sheazgaz, the king's eunuch. Who was in charge of the concubines? She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. All right. So basically, they'd go through this cosmetic process that took a year long, with like oils and spices. It was like the KFC recipe or something. I don't know. Like, and they said some of those oils would change their skin complexion if they had any blemishes. I mean, the king wanted them perfect, perfect. Now, and also remember, they were given special food. Uh, I'm sure that was not kosher. Uh, Esther had won the eunuch's favor. He assigned these seven uh, maids, top maids, to court her through this and to help her. And she, she quickly moves to the best place in the harem. So what happened to the woman? What happened to a woman when they went to the king? Well, it was one woman each night uh, that could take whatever they wanted to take in there with the king, with them, a gift or something like that. And the text says they would go in at nighttime. Kind of translate that for you. Uh, they would go in at nighttime, meaning no date. No dinner, no small talk like, hey, where are you from? What do you do? What are your interests? What's your sign? Or anything like that. Nothing like that. <laughs> it was possibly right to bed, whatever the king desires, walk a shame in the morning. That's, that's basically what the text is saying right here. And in the morning, they would go back into the custody, so they're a possession now, of the guy named Shiazgas, which sounds like the founding member of Wu-Tang, all right? It's like, the Rizzo, the Giza, Ghostface Killer, Shiasgas there, and... Wilt Chamberlain, I don't know. Anyway, each woman went through a year's worth of grooming. They said uh, up until the time of Esther, potentially four years have passed, that would be over 1,000 women that the king had slept with. I mean, Wilt Chamberlain is blushing now, right? Like this is, this is, this is bad. And after the night, if you were not selected, you went back into the harem to live out the rest of your existence. And that was it. King may call your number up again, but Probably not. It's horrible. Horrible. Verse 15. When the time came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's unit, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So we don't know what she took. We just know that she's still winning favor. Like she's still doing her thing. Verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus and to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, though it's um, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. She won, she won the contest. Now, now, just to rewind, Vashti, this Persian lady said no to being a sexual object feels like esther because she doesn't know the end of the story please please keep in mind esther doesn't know the end of the story it seems to me that esther is all but you know just willing to to play along and to comply to these king's wishes she is the perfect persian woman for him but yet in her life she is a jew she won the competition by playing by the persian rules and look at how happy the king is, verse 18. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the providence and gave gifts with royal generosity. The king was so happy. He throws another party because that dude likes to get down, and he starts cutting taxes. Like that's unheard of. And so this is our text today. Sounds good? Let's pray and go home. What do we do with this? Like, I mean, when you just read a story like this, it's, it's like, it's not giving you a whole lot. What's going on? It's like, what, what do we do with this? Well, we need to be careful. Sometimes we read the Bible as a religious book, meaning, or maybe another way to say that, we read the Bible as um, a moralized book. And when we come to the Bible, we say, hey, there are people in the Bible that are good, There are people in the Bible that are bad, and I want to be like the good person, and I want to be uh, one of the good people of the Bible. And so it kind of tells us if we moralize the Bible, if we we see it as just a religious book, then we'll say, God loves good people. God does not like bad people. God is for good people. God is not for bad people. Or maybe we look at the book, uh, the Bible, and we see it as nothing more than heroes and villains. We look at Ahasuerus, we say villains. But then we look at uh, you know Esther and Mordecai, we're like, they're heroes, yay. And we just say there's heroes and there's vil- villains of the Bible and I want to be a hero just like Esther. <laughs> Yikes, it's more than that. Yeah, there's some lowercase uh, h heroes of the Bible, but when we look at Esther, it's, it's, it's hard to call her a, a hero there, Mordecai. It looks like they are compromised. the proper way to look at the Bible is the Bible only has one hero, and his name is? Yeah. The rest of the people in the Bible are complicated, complex, broken people. Let me say it one more time. The rest of the people of the Bible are complicated, complex, broken people who are just like you and I. Complicated, complex, and broken. Am I right? And what we need to do with stories like this that we hear today is to be honest with them being complicated, complex, and broken and stand back and and, and watch what what does God do with complicated, complex, and broken people because if I am one of them as well, when I watch him interact with them either through his visible or invisible hand, I can see how he's going to operate with me as well and how he's going to engage me. So, So let me summarize this then. For the love of God. Please do not see yourself as one of the good guys of the Bible that God loves just because you're one of the good guys or good gals. Please don't see yourself and myself as well much different than Mordecai and Esther or even King Ahasuerus. Because although we may not have done those things externally, if we got down to the heart of it and that's what Jesus does, we're just like them. We we have compromised. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves, right? We're in church, I'm going to force you to be honest. Our lives, if we got really, really honest, are sort of Christian and sort of non-Christian, aren't they? Our lives are sort of obedient and sort of disobedient. Our lives, we try to live based on the Bible at times and sort of sometimes we're like, hey, what's the Bible again? Our lives are sort of lived out publicly in front of others that we believe in God and then sometimes publicly that we deny God. Our lives are sort of knowing the scriptures, what they say, and sort of not knowing what the scriptures say. And what we must do is we must be honest with ourselves, with one another, and with God about this. We must be be honest that we are inconsistent in our faith. We must be honest that we have compromised our walk with Christ time over time again. Now, I bet you sit there right now, and you're probably like, amen, brother. Amen. Uh, You know, I know a lot of those compromisers you're talking about. Amen. When I look at Christianity today, it is a compromised faith. Amen, brother. No. No. It's you. <laughs> Amen, brother. It's, it's that woman beside me. It's that, it's that husband of mine beside me. It's my, my kid. No, it's you. It's me. Like we need to be honest about our indiscretions. We need to be honest about our unfaithfulness to the Lord. We need to be honest about our compromises. Can, can you see them? Can you, can you feel them? Can you... Hear them when they come out of your mouth. Can you just feel it when you're just like, I'm just not living for Jesus right now, and I know these are disobedient things. Can can you feel that of your own life, not someone else's? Well, let me help you with it. Perhaps you are in your workplace, and your workplace is anything but Christian or godly, and you bend the rules, fudge the numbers, and tell lies, play politics, and just keep climbing up the ladder you're compromised. Maybe you're a teenager here living for Jesus here, like you're all about some Jesus here, but at school, no one's got a clue that you follow Jesus. Matter of fact, just the opposite. You are compromising. Maybe you're single, and the only way you can mingle is to adopt the world's view of sexuality because you're lonely, because like you don't want to be alone, and so like you'll just give in to whatever. You're compromising. If you're married here, and in your marriage, There's no friendship the Bible talks about, or honor, or submission, or dignity, and Jesus is definitely not at the center of it. It's all conditional. I'll do this for you as long as you keep doing this for me, but when you stop doing this, then I'll stop doing that as well. You're compromising. Or instead of investing in our kids, loving them, and discipling them in the ways of Jesus, it's just easier to busy them up with activities and entertainment and screens. Just compromising. We grab our phones out first thing in the morning and last thing in the day when our Bibles tell us over and over that we go to God's Word, first in the morning and the last of the day. you are compromising. Porn's easier than relationships. You're compromising. Taking is easier than giving. Compromising. It's easier just to come here and consume than actually contribute here to the church as the church. Compromising. Never give because if if you did give, you couldn't keep up with the Joneses next to you and couldn't live that lifestyle or anything like that. Compromising never serve as well. Never serve the church around here because it will cost you your time, and time is the most important thing to you. And you're like I gotta have some me time. Compromise. We fold like a deck of cards anytime we are confronted with gender issues because it will get us canceled in a heartbeat. If you have a biblical view of gender and sexuality, compromising. We rely, rely, we rely on our good deeds so we feel better about ourselves, and we can look down upon other people rather than come into this like, sobering reality that our good works are like filthy rags before the Lord? Compromising. We treat our bodies like dumpsters, and yet God tells us to treat them like temples? Compromising. We treat our bodies like gods instead of treating it as submitting to God. Compromising. Before we can throw a stone at somebody else like Esther and Mordecai, we better take that stone, throw it up the air, and get under it. Because we're compromised people. Do you feel the weight of it? Do you feel the weight of your compromising? Not yet. Well, let me try another way. (laughs) What is your name? Count of three, say it out loud one, two, three. Does this hear Iron Man? (laughs) Okay. When people think of your name, what is associated with your name? Godly, upright, integrity, dude or gal who worships Jesus? When other people hear your name, what is thought of? Not a Christian, not a godly person, not an upright or anything like that. No, 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 no. What is it when people think about your, your name? See, we're we're compromised people. We have compromised our walk with Christ. We've compromised our worship to Jesus. We've compromised our relationship with one another. We have compromised where we're not we're not becoming more and more like Jesus if we got really honest sometimes. We're becoming more and more like the world around us. Now do you feel the weight of it? What are we to do? What can we do about this? Is there any hope for us at all? Now let's pray. A kid such good news for us See, it's not like you can have enough you know resources inside of you enough juice inside of you like you know what ty you're right and i'm never going to compromise again and i'm going to you know live for the lord and i'm going to do all these things right and he'll never see me compromise again you ain't got it in you 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 can't do it every person in the bible and every person standing and sitting here today is a compromiser except for one his name is jesus and here's the good news God loves, pursues, uses, and transforms compromisers. You know why? It's all He's got to work with. This is who we are. But Ty, I mean, I've looked at the Bible, I've heard about the Bible, and there's some heroes of the Bible flawed ones. Abraham was a liar, Sarah laughed at God's promises. Moses was impatient. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. There's that. Jacob was a liar. David had an affair. Solomon slept around. Peter denied Jesus. John was self-righteous. Paul was a murderer. So was Moses. Jonah ran from God. Miriam was a gossip. Gideon and Thomas both doubted Jesus. Uh, Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Elijah was burned out. John the Baptist, they say, was a loudmouth. Martha was a worrywart. Noah got hammered drunk. Esther compromised her sexuality. Mordecai failed to protect her. And Ty says a lot of dumb things. These so-called heroes of the Bible, not me are compromised. The Bible doesn't condone their compromising. The Bible calls it sin. It it very much calls it sins. And when we compromise, we sin. And they have have consequences. But the question we have to ask as we read through the book of Esther is, how does God deal with Esther and and Mordecai, these compromised people? Well, I mean, we're going to see that He uses them. He loves them. He protects them. It guides them and leads them. Brother and sister, I want to give you some really good news today. I don't want you to miss this. I asked you earlier, what is your name? And you told me your name. It's a great name. It's awesome. But you know, if you're in Christ, God has a better name waiting on you. And it's a perfect name for you. And that name will have no no blemishes against it. It'll have no compromises against it. It'll only be perfect because we'll be made perfect in Christ. Look what it says in the book of Revelation, Revelation two seventeen It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Do you hear that? There is a name waiting on you that is a perfected name, all because of Christ and his perfection. Now, the question is, has God pointed out some compromises in your life today? I hope he has. He has mine. What are you going to do with that? Don't run. Don't wallow. Don't run away from God. And don't wallow in it. Don't just like, oh, I feel so bad. I'll make myself feel so bad for a while, and then I'll feel better again. No, you run that to Jesus. This is a sweet thing that the Lord does. He doesn't lead us into, into this like worldly, uh, you know, worldly upsetness of like, oh, man, I feel bad about myself. He leads us into this godly sorrow of like, oh, I've sinned against the Lord. But now he's showing me that and I have this beautiful thing called repentance where I can turn from my sin and turn back to Christ and he welcomes me. How many times does he welcome you back? Every time. Every time. And so, brothers and sisters, I encourage you today as we read this story, just look at what God does with compromisers. Keep following the story. He loves them. He uses them. He pursues them and he protects them all the way to the end, why would that be different with us? If there's compromise in your life, it's a great opportunity to confess that and repent to the Lord and turn back to Him today. So here in a moment, I'm going to pray, there may be some of you here today that you've never trusted Jesus. You say, "Hey, I'm not a follower of Jesus. Today, you can follow Jesus, and the good news is today, we have a pool here for you to be baptized in. So if you want to trust Jesus today, uh, when I say amen, everyone's going to stand. The band's going to come back out. We're going to sing a little bit of a song. You can walk right out those doors. There's men and women that would love to, to talk to you and pray with you and, and help you understand what it means to follow Jesus and help you understand what it means to be baptized. Or if you're a follower of Jesus today and you've never been baptized as a believer, we've got, we've got a pool of water right here. Don't wait. Take that opportunity. Do that today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go to the Lord's table together. Father, thank you for your love, mercy, and just your kindness. Forgive me and my... Uh, misstep in words. I just, I pray that um, that that today uh, people would see that how good and merciful and kind you are. I pray that we would all see that um, we're all a compromised people. Jesus, you're the only one that was completely 100% perfect, true, good, and right. And so when we look through our Bible, sure, there's some lowercase h's in there, but There's only one hero in Jesus, that's you. And for that, we are just eternally grateful. We owe you everything. Father, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters to where your spirit has just been speaking to them, not even today, but even before today, just preparing them to show them just sin of compromise, whether it be not sharing their faith, whether it be not living in the ways of Christ, living opposed to that or whatever it may be. Holy Spirit, would you, would you bring them to a place, bring us to a place of confession and repentance to so where we can turn back to you and just enjoy the sweetness of communing with you again. Father, I also pray for, pray for my friends who are here today that they do not know you. Holy Spirit, would you would you save them? Would you, would you bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ, a trust of Christ? Give them faith to do that today. and Would you give them the boldness and the, the courage they need to come and be baptized to to join in, to, to be a part of, of what you're doing and just your people here. And so as you do all your work, we trust you. Would it be for our joy and our good? And Jesus, just like this invisible hand we see throughout the story of Esther, our good and for your glory alone, we pray in Christ's name, amen.